Welcome to the Liberty Block. This is Elliot Axelman. I am joined today by Shannon McGinley, the Executive Director of Cornerstone, New Hampshire. Thank you so much for coming on Liberty Block, Shannon. Thanks, Elliot, for having me. All right, so you're the Executive Director of New Hampshire Cornerstone. Can you explain to our listeners a bit about what Cornerstone, New Hampshire is? Sure. Well, Cornerstone Action and Cornerstone Policy Research, they're two organizations that fall under what we've kind of become known as the as Cornerstone, um, kind of the umbrella organization, just to say Cornerstone. We're nonpartisan, nonprofit organizations um, that's dedicated to a New Hampshire where God is honored, religious freedom flourishes, families thrive, and life is cherished. And we're actually made up of about um, 40 other family policy councils throughout the country. Um, and we are um, one of, of those. And we deal with key issues like life, marriage and family, parental rights, education, and religious freedom, and more recently, the gender issues as well. So you are pretty much evil for every single reason in the world. You are, <laughs> you are like me, you are like the worst kind of person in the whole world because you like God, religious freedom, free speech, pro-life. Oh my God, you are batting a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> so you've made a lot of enemies, I assume. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you could call it that. I prefer to say adversaries, people that we disagree with. I like to think, though, that we can still be um, I, be friendly and kind and charitable with one another. But certainly there are things that we passionately disagree on. But we try to find common ground with people where we can. But it's 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 not without challenges, for sure. In the yeah, climate okay. So currently you follow legislation pretty well, um, yep. along with, with me, NHLA, a bunch of others, you follow legislation very well. I think you said you have your own spreadsheets and your own uh, <laughs> documentation. You keep track of a lot of bills. I, I just I was just on your website and you have, it's pretty decently laid out a bunch of different bills by issue. So what are some of your, your top bills or, or what are all the important bills that Cornerstone or that you are following in this session? Yeah, well, we've got quite a few. Uh, some of the issues that we're dealing with, um, for, I'll just kind of categorize them. Um, the, on the life issue, we have um, HB 625, which is a bill that seeks to protect babies born after 24 weeks. Um, and um, excuse me, we pr to, to protect preborn life at 24 weeks and beyond that essentially no abortions would be allowed here in the state of New Hampshire after 24 weeks unless it was a direct threat to the mother's life or um, specific health issues, not emotional health, but actual significant physical health issues. Uh, and then we also have a bill that's called the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. Um, it's a bill at number HB 233, which seeks to protect babies who are born alive and to basically give them the same kind of treatment that we would other, um, any other human being, you know, that to give them the same types of protections. We weren't involved in that bill in the very beginning, but then we decided um, with and Senzel is introducing that we feel really good about the bill um, as long as it has Regina Birdsell's amendment. And then we also have a bill, HB 434 by Vanessa that seeks to um, enshrine in New Hampshire statute that taxpayer funding 
of abortions would not be allowed. And that would be again, direct funding of abortions. Uh, and you know, with that, I mean, we haven't really been paying for abortions directly because every two years in our budget, we have generally been able to get language in there that prevents that from happening. But rather than to have to have that battle every two years in the context of the budget, we think that it makes a lot more sense to just enshrine that in state statute. And then we have another bill uh, that HB 430, which is sponsored by Representative Nikki Kelsey of Bedford, uh, who, which would um, protect free speech on public sidewalks. Right now we have a law on the books that has been on the books, I think since, I wanna say 2014, I'm all of a sudden forgetting which year that it was, but um, that would allow for um, abortion facilities to have a bubble zone of free speech uh, or to, to prevent free speech yeah. within this bubble, in this bubble around abortion clinics, um, and they say that it's in order to, you know, protect those women that are going inside for um, for abortion. But that um, Massachusetts had a law similar to that, and it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was deemed to be unconstitutional. And so, for all the points that are important, we have the same bill, um, same law. And so, we say rather than to leave it on the books when they're not even enforcing it, because they know fundamentally that it is unconstitutional to to, to get it off the books. Doesn't and federal then, precedent already strike that down? Meaning, it should already be federally illegal to have that anti-free speech bubble. That is correct. That is correct. But it is still in the books. No abortion facility in the state of New Hampshire has actually posted the bubble zone. Uh, so that has not been, um, uh, you know, done yet. Um, and I think part of it is because they know that uh, it would be declared to be unconstitutional if they did so. And yet what was interesting, Elliot, in the testimony given at the hearing when people from the abortion facilities were there, they were talking about the enormous amount of harassment and, and so forth that the women deal with that are going inside for their abortions. But what's interesting to me is that they've not been calling the police about it. There's already laws on the books that prevent harassment and you know any kind of, you know if they were to be touched or you know being threatened, there are currently laws on the books. And if that is happening, then, then, then they should be held to the full extent of the law you know, in that, in that case. But we shouldn't be having free speech zones on public um, or anti-free speech zones on public sidewalks in order to prevent issues, to seemingly prevent issues that are already illegal. Um, and if it is so bad, then why haven't they posted the bubble zone? So, um, you, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. And, you know, we put out a video recently, it's just about eight minute video where we show like, what is life like on the sidewalk? And we interview a couple of the sidewalk counselors that provide alternatives to the women going inside. And it's just really some heartfelt stories. And, um, you know, I've been out on, at the, at the sidewalk of many abortion facilities before, and I don't see that which they're describing. Yeah, those so videos think, are pretty powerful. Oh, good. I'm glad you saw them. Oh, that's great. A lot of it ended up on the cutting room floor because we couldn't have it be so long and it made me so sad because there were some really great stories about um, women changing their mind and, you know, uh, the fathers coming around and just some really great um, stories like that. So we think that we're going to take some of that content 
and make a separate video of just encouraging people to come out to the sidewalk that aren't necessarily that that, that video wouldn't be focused on a particular piece of legislation, but just broadly, you know, talking about what life is like on the sidewalk and encouraging um, other folks to come outside. I mean, it's my vision and dream to be able to have, you know, different churches to have like a different time of day that they can come out and, you know, have that coverage so that there's always someone there to offer these women an alternative in their, you know, in a very stressful time in their lives with the, you know, they have a lot of fear and concern. And so, you know, we really want to create a culture where abortion is unthinkable and not just illegal. We want, you know, these women to not even consider um, doing such a thing. Cause I mean, at the end of the day, no woman really wants to have an abortion. And I heard a feminist once say, a pro-life feminist once say, Frederica Matthews Green, she said, a woman who has an abortion is like a dog caught in a trap who gnaws off his own leg in order to break free. Mm-hmm. And I just, I felt like that's such a powerful visual that I, I, I want, I want us to be able to address what are all the issues that are going on in a woman's life that would lead her to make such a drastic decision. And can we, and can we address those things? You know, if you're in a, a violent relationship, you know, in a domestic violence situation, let's address that. You know, if there's a job situation, how can we address that to help her to find a job? Or if it's material support with diapers and bottles and car seats, you know, let's address that. Like that shouldn't, the baby isn't the problem. It's these other issues that are going on in her life that are the issue. And and it's interesting you say that, um, it should be unthinkable and and no woman really wants to do it as a, as a pessimist. Again, you know, you're an optimist, which is fine. Um, I accept all kinds of people. It's fine. You're an optimist, but I'm a big pessimist. And what I've seen throughout the U S the last few years is that abortion, whether it's manufactured and astroturfed or, or, or real, and there's some grassroots there, the radical left is making abortion into seemingly a great, beautiful, amazing, happy thing. That's empowering to women. Cause you know, killing another life is empowering. It is in a sick way. Um, and if you look at like shoutyourabortion.com or something, they've made it into a big movement and they're kind of celebrating and glorifying it. So maybe some women, like some of those actresses, maybe they really do want to have abortions. I've heard plenty of feminist actresses, they're sociopaths, but they've said, I, I want to get pregnant again so I can have an abortion. Every girl should have an abortion by the time you know they're 15 or 16. It's so great. It's so fun. So there is that movement too, right? Yeah, I think that those are pretty rare cases. You know, they certainly exist, but they're pretty rare. And I would even argue that for some of those voices that we hear that are talking like that, that when they're in that very moment, they really don't want to have the abortion. And, but that they have to justify it, right? That's, you know, I mean, I can remember as a teenager, you know, my mom, you know, talking about people that are trying to get me to smoke or, you know, whatever, like, you know, here, smoke one, it'll make me feel better about me smoking. I mean, they're not literally saying that, but, you know, it, it's kind of the same thing with an abortion. Misery likes I, company. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah, exactly. Misery loves company. And so, you know, it takes a lot of humility and um, to say that I've done something wrong, you know, and to say, I wish I hadn't done that. You know, I mean, we can all see it, think of different things in our lives where it's been hard with our spouses or our children to admit, like, I'm really sorry I screwed up on that. It's, well, it's hard like the hardest to thing do. to do is to admit you did something wrong, of course. Especially something as dramatic as killing yeah. your child. Yeah. So currently with, with these bills, with House Bill 625, that passed the house it did and now it's headed to the senate they had um the senate had a hearing um last week on that in the judiciary committee which is headed by senator sharon carson 
and um, and they will probably vote in the committee maybe next week. I mean, we'll know more when the House and the Senate calendars come out tomorrow night. They come out every Thursday. But, you know, if I had to guess, I'd probably say next week and then maybe then the full Senate would vote on it the following week. We had some troublesome dynamics that were going on in that committee hearing where um, Representative Bill Gannon, excuse me, Senator Bill Gannon, you know, he has a strong pro-life voting record. Um, but he started getting very waffly during that hearing and has since uh, made comments to others that he doesn't intend to support the bill without adding some uh, amendments to it that would really gut the bill to the point that we would no longer be able to support it because it would really, with the kinds of amendments that he's looking for, it would actually enshrine abortion in state law, which we do not currently have and make it actually more dangerous than the situation that we have right now. So we are really encouraging folks to um, reach out to Senator Gannon uh, and you know he's from Sandown and ask him to, um, his, his name is Senator Bill Gannon of Sandown and to ask him um, to not support um, you know, these amendments, but rather to support the bill as, as, as amended by um, Regina Birdsell. We do have a couple of amendments that are our amendments that Senator Birdsell will be introducing, but it's been really disconcerting that Senator Gannon has taken the path that he has, particularly in light of him representing himself as a pro-life candidate in the election last year. Yeah, so I'm sure there's going to be some trouble in the Senate, and but if it does pass, Governor Sununu also has not been the strongest pro-life governor as far as Republicans as well, right? Do you have any feel that for is that? True. Yeah, he, he, you know, considers himself to be pro-choice. It's unclear what he would do with this particular piece of legislation. Um, you know, we think that it's very reasonable legislation. And quite frankly, you know, there were a number of state reps that consider themselves to be pro-choice, but they felt like that third trimester abortions were just too far for them. And I think that it's a very realistic exit ramp to say, listen, I'm pro-choice, but third trimester abortions are I just don't feel comfortable with that. They've got 24 weeks that they can make the decision to abort, even in cases of rape and incest, that they're going to know and they're going to have plenty of time to make that decision. Now, I personally would hope that they would choose life, but I'm just giving you the, you know, the, the off ramp for somebody who could consider themselves to be pro-choice that, um, that they can be, you know, um, realistic and say, I just, I don't feel comfortable with third trimester abortions. And we hope that Governor Sununu can take that path. And because there are narrow majorities for, for this issue, there, there's no chance of overriding a veto, right, on this on this bill. That would be really tough. Yeah. yeah. I don't okay, see that. so we have House Bill 434, um, eliminating taxpayer funds of abortion. Was that stuck into the budget? Uh, yes, actually. Well, I mean, the bill is still a standalone bill that would enshrine it in law going forward so that it wouldn't have to be re uh, revisited every two years in the budget. But as of today, there was language um, there. Well, the Finance Committee in the House passed language that would not allow for not only direct funding of abortion, but it would also prevent funding of taxpayer dollars from going to um, abortion facilities. So in other words, if you do abortions, you have to separate out your abortion business from your other reproductive health care. Um, so your, you know, your typical, your birth control pills, your, you know, there are 
other kinds of you know pap smears or, or whatnot that you would have to separate those out and that actually was sustained today in in the house um, the, the house is meeting in session today in Bedford at the Bedford Sports Complex and the um, some Democrat representatives had introduced an amendment that would strip out this language because they feel so strongly that taxpayer dollars should um, support organizations like Planned Parenthood that are the number one abortion provider in the country. So currently that's an HB1 and that passed. HB2. HB, okay, HB2. Yeah. Well, I mean, one is the, yeah, one is the numbers, but yes, yes, in the budget. So, but they were still, at, at the time of this recording, they were still debating other amendments. Um, so it, it hasn't like officially, the budget debate is not officially over um, today, but they, but at least for that particular aspect, we felt really good about that. Okay, excellent. Next, I have written down here House Bill 440. House Bill 440? Yes. So that's the Civil Liberties Defense Act. And that is a piece of legislation that says that emergency orders cannot be suspended, excuse me, that civil liberties and constitutional rights cannot be suspended during times of, um, of emergency orders. And that was sort of, that legislation was birthed out of a Binford case from last March um, that, that's, that the that the the court said that civil liberties could be suspended during emergency orders, and we feel like that it's very very important that that not be the case because right now under New Hampshire law we are enjoying our civil liberties at um, at the kindness of Governor Sununu right now. <laughs> so at any point, like I mean, literally our First Amendment due process of the law. All of those things are being enjoyed right now because of Governor Sununu allowing it to happen. And although he has been, you know, kind, shall we say, <laughs> um, re relatively speaking, we do still have, you know, due process and, you know, in many ways and so forth. But, you know, so it's not necessarily just about this situation of emergency order under this particular governor, but it really is about protecting us from a nefarious leader at some point in the future. And, um, and we feel like that this is a very um, commonsensical thing, you know, to have. And I think that, you know, even though Governor Sununu's Attorney General Office had asked the judge in the Benford case in March of 2020 to have this, to come down with this kind of um, decision. I think that in retrospect, they realized, you know, at that time it was all un unknown and we really were trying to flatten the curve and, you know, that it seemed to make sense at the time to get everybody to just be at home. And that we've come to realize that that, that um, is, was probably not the best way to word it. <laughs> you know, that other states like Maine, they have not suspended civil liberties during emergency orders, and yet there's not chaos in the streets and so forth. Um, they're still managing COVID, they're still masking, they're still socially distancing, they're still doing all of those things, but they, they do not have it, um, a, a legal precedent that says that the governor can suspend emergency, you know, civil liberties during emergency orders. So that bill is being sponsored by Jim Kofalt, Representative Jim Kofalt. So we are, um, and it passed in the in the committee in the House. And so we're cautiously optimistic that it will pass sometime. Maybe today they might get to it. Today we'll see. It might get pushed until tomorrow. 
So that sounds like a great bill to to codify in law that we have civil liberties, even if there is an emergency, which there have been like a billion declared national emergencies and states of emergencies. So it's not you know that that big of a deal. Um, but the, how broad is this bill? It seems pretty broad. Is it specific and does it have teeth? Or is it just a general bill saying we have civil liberties and you can't treat us like slaves if there is an emergency? Is it is it specific? Well, First, to get into some legal, had Ian Hewitt, our uh, legal counsel here with us, because he would be able to elaborate even more than I can. But it basically boils down to the fact that it, that it would be you're held to the same legal standard as any other time, you know, a scrutiny of legal scrutiny. That's essentially what it means. And any any number of issues, if your free speech is being, in, you know, inhibited upon or your religious freedom or your due process any of those kinds of things is that it would be held to the same level of scrutiny as any other time outside of emergency orders. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Does the bill have any punishments in it if a person violates it? So if a cop restricts my free speech and says, you have no free speech, you can't question coronavirus, I'm going to handcuff you and throw you in prison, or I'm going to beat you or, or shoot you. Do I have any recourse for that? Or, or is there a punishment in this bill other than me suing him in civil court? Um, is there, re you know, is there a punishment in the bill saying that cop shall be punished? I'm not sure, to be honest with you, Elliot. I would I would have to lean on on Ian for some of the, the legal specifics. Because what I've realized recently is most bills, most laws that we have in the state and federal laws, what they do is they restrict us, right? Not politicians, they restrict us. They're, they're laws. We have a few billion laws. They restrict us. And there are punishments. Every single law, I believe, has punishments. There are there are uh, sentencing guidelines, you know, a minimum and a maximum fine and a minimum and a maximum prison sentence. So there are clearly defined punishments when you and I violate the law. And there are billions of these. The very few laws like the Constitution and the very, very few laws that that limit government, because some laws, the nature of that law is limiting government, they never really have punishments in them. So they say a government can't do this and that, but there's no punishment. So if the government does it, if a cop or a governor does it, there's no actual punishment. So what's the point of those laws existing? That's why I'm not a big fan of laws that restrict government because they don't really restrict government because there's no punishment. Right, right. Well, I think, yeah, I, I don't want to speak too much without actually giving myself a refresher course and exactly what it said, but I can certainly get back to you on it. Okay, yeah, that's fine. I, I would love to have you know, on the show sometime as well, for sure. So um, I have written down House Bill 542 here. Are you yes. familiar with that one? Yeah, that's Representative Keith Ammons' bill out of New Boston. And Keith introduced that bill um, and it was amended uh, because there was um, a, the MAC decision, which came out like two days before Christmas in 2020, it was based on a religious freedom issue that kind of rendered the original language of the bill a little bit unnecessary because of the um, of that court case would take precedent over anything that was in statute. And so the bill was amended and that bill basically says that churches cannot be held to a higher standard than any other institution in society um, during a time of emergency orders. So say for example, that um, you can't have a situation during emergency orders where a church is closed down, but yet the grocery store is open. You can't, now you can still have social distancing rules. You can still have masking. You can still have all of those other requirements, but they can't 
be a higher standard than that of the rest of society. So also you couldn't have social distancing requirements for churches, but yet no social distancing requirements for the palace theater. And then the question is, that's a good bill, but the question is, does this involve uh, whether some things are considered essential? Because they might say the grocery store is essential and church is not. Church is considered to be essential because okay. um, because of the First Amendment and the Free Exercise Clause. Okay. Arguably, your First Amendment and the free exercise, the right to free exercise, is arguably higher than that of going to the grocery store. But we're not even necessarily saying that in this bill. We're just saying that it has to be the same. Yeah, because I think in some states they kept the uh, casinos open and shut the churches, right? That is correct, and that's what we're trying to prevent. It's amazing how far we've gone. I mean, maybe even 5, 10, 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, private property meant private property. And if someone came into your church and said, you're not social distancing enough, what would happen is you would tell them you're trespa they're trespassing, whether they're wearing blue or not, doesn't matter what color they're wearing, right? If they're trespassing, you'd warn them. And after a warning, a few seconds later, you can use force by any means necessary because they're trespassing, right? Now, exactly. a different universe, whole different universe now. They own the church. You're nothing. I'm nothing. They own you. They own the church. They can come and say, stop praying, stop, you know, put on masks, social distance. And if you don't obey every single law, and we're just trying to change a tiny bit of the letters in the law, that doesn't matter much, but they own the church. We all have to admit now they own every single piece of property. I've written many articles and, and books about this. They own the property. They, they might give you, we're begging for a bit more permission, but they own it. They own my house because they tell me what to do in my house. It's very sad that we no longer have property rights, right? Preach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, but but what was so funny, I think this was Kentucky or Virginia, where they were doing the drive-in, like a drive-in theater. Yeah. People were staying literally in their vehicles and praying, right? So alone in their vehicles, and they shut that down too and arrested them and fined them, right? So it wasn't the the praying together that bothered them. It was It was just worshiping. Even in your own car alone, worshiping was a crime, right? Yeah, it was outrageous. There were a couple of situations like that around where, you know, they were being out in the cars and they were still trying to, to control it. And and I think for a lot of governors, a lot of leaders, they realize, whoa, we're, we're, we're going too far here. And then they kind of pulled back and, and, and recognize that, you know, we had a situation in New Hampshire in the fall where there was um, a part of the governor's order said that churches were not allowed to have meetings outside of the actual church service. So like, in other words, like if they wanted to have, you know, a gathering after church or before church or a prayer group and, and they were serving food, um, for example, you know, like coffee or whatever, that was not allowed, but yet you still had the theaters that were open, socially distanced, of course, but they were serving wine and cheese, you know, before or after. And so that's a perfect, this is a, that's a real world example that actually happened, you know, of where churches were being held to a higher standard than the theater was being held to. And so, you know, we did point that out to the governor's office and their attorney and, you know, said this is a violation of the free exercise clause and it was reversed. And so then they were made equal. Um, and so I think, you know, just this is where it's important to have an organization like Cornerstone in the state and to have organizations like Cornerstone in states around the country that are reminding our, our political leaders of the rights of the faithful. And, you know, we can, I don't want to presume that they're being nefarious by it. Maybe it was an oversight, but the point is, is that 
the First Amendment shouldn't be an oversight. The free exercise religion should not be an oversight. That it, you know, we want it to be at the forefront of everyone's minds. That is absolutely critical to protect that. Yeah, and you're being too nice. And I'm, I'm not going to assume, give them the benefit of the doubt. It wasn't a passive thing. It was active. They actively, government officials, tyrants, dictators, police throughout the country, actively pursued and then enforced and, and punished people for praying. It was very active. They went to churches and punished people for praying. So it wasn't. Well, I was speaking specifically of the of the, the the order that was repealed. You know that I can't speak to that. But you know, yeah, it was upsetting to see them going after the churches and then you know releasing it to the media and then the media you know seeks to to pummel them and you know. I, even just today with Magdalene College, you know, I thought that it, it's very disturbing what they're doing with Magdalene College today about, you know, that there's like 16 cases um, that, you know, when I say cases, they had positive COVID tests, you know, at Magdalene College, and they're saying that it's a result of Easter weekend, um, which, you know, it's who's possible to, say? to know where someone contracted any virus. Exactly. And, you know, I just, I think that it's sad to, you know, post them like that, you know, and to, and to shame them. And, you know, those people, you know, that was their choice and they can contain. And anyway, I mean, that's a little bit outside of our lane, but yet, you know, I still feel passionate about the fact that, you know, it is a religious school and that that is what does fall in our lane. And, you know, I, I think that it's important that they be protected for, you know, them exercising their, their right to their faith, you know, and to celebrate for Easter. Yeah, the attacks on religious freedom, and again, corona fascism has a lot of aspects to it, right? They destroyed the economy and, and free speech and religious freedom and property rights and, and health freedom. But just the attack on religious freedom, I, I think it is getting some attention, maybe not enough. I know you've been you've been bringing attention to it, and I have a little bit. I think I have like a, a whole chapter in my book on corona fascism about religious freedom and how they, they totally destroyed religious freedom and said, screw the First Amendment, screw your religion. Um, but maybe it should get even more attention just the, the destruction of religious freedom in the name of corona fascism, because of course you can't pray. So here I also have written down House Bill 136 I want to talk about. Was that the birth certificate bill? Yes, was that the One, number? I'm sorry, 136? No, 295 was the birth certificate bill. Okay, what, what was 136? Um, um, oh my gosh, you're showing me up here with- Oh, all you've these. been perfect so far. You're batting a thousand so far, by the way. Um, hang on, I have to look up what 136 was. You can use my handy spreadsheet that I have that I've been- Oh, that was the requiring schools to update documents and software to include the option of identifying a student as non-binary. Okay, so I can speak to that. Sorry, I just blacked out on the, the bill number. There's like over 800 bills and they all start to blur together in my head. Um, that, okay, so that bill, um, that bill actually came up last year as well. Uh, and it, it's a bill that would require the schools just to translate what that said was that it would allow in their computer systems where it says like male or female to have a drop down that would have non-binary in there. And so it would be an expense to the taxpayers. This is again of public schools. This wouldn't necessarily impact private schools yet. Um, so that, it impact home schools? So it wouldn't impact the actual yeah, school where my kids right, are Right, that, um, that they would have to, you know, get new software and totally change the software to be able to have it because the infrastructure is not set up for a third option. And, you know, what I have advocated for in that particular situation is that 
I do think that it's important for faculty to recognize that a student is dealing with gender identity issues and that they're working through, you know, some challenges. And just like any other student in, in the, in the software, you have a section where there are, there's a place to put notations in there, you know, that you could even say like the child, you know, parents are going through a divorce or, you know, recently moved into the area or, you know, dealing with bullying issues or whatnot that I think that, you know, as a parent of five sons, like I recognize that the school may want to try to keep track of some of these things because it helps them to better navigate and to guide the child, you know, when they're dealing with different issues, but to label them so explicitly that they are non-binary written in stone, the same as male and female, I think is a very big mistake because we all can agree that we don't like labels. We don't like it when we're labeled. We don't like it when our children are labeled, particularly when they're still going through adolescence and they're evolving and trying to figure out who they are. And I think it's a very big mistake to label them in such a way that locks them into something. And, um, and so for that reason, we're opposed to that bill. That's a great point. I've never heard that point made that way, that being non-binary, which is about not labeling, is in and of itself a label. You know, labeling sure. non-binary, that, that is a label for sure. So, and that one was retained in committee, meaning it's not likely to pass? Yeah, yeah, and they're, they're hanging on to it, but we'll have to deal with it in September. And do you know what's going on with House Bill 20 or the Senate version of the House, the uh, Education Freedom Accounts? Yeah, so that's been rolled into the budget, um, and I'm sure they'll be debating it today to try to repeal that out of the budget. But right now, the House version is being held in the committee, and the Senate version is being held in their committee. But then the Senate had the ability to roll it into the budget. And so even if it fails in the budget, those two chambers and their committees can resurrect the bills. Okay, and, and these versions of the bills, the House and Senate version and the budget version, are they still decent? Because I know this bill has been poisoned in the past. I've written about it a lot. Um, has the bill totally been poisoned or is it still a decent bill? There's for us and our issues in our lane, there's there the biggest concern that we have is that in the Senate, the bill was amended. It's had various life forms. So I'm just giving you like the most current <laughs> situation is that it has language in there that is um they would refer to it as the non-discrimination policy that was put in there. And we are very concerned that that will affect private schools. So in particular, you know, parochial schools, Catholic schools, Christian schools that, you know, may fundamentally believe that um, men are men and women are women, for example, and that, you know, they, they don't want to be identified, have they don't want to embrace a situation, just going back to the previous example of having like a non-binary student or a female student identifying as male, vice versa. So this bill and wouldn't so, allow for funds to go to, to be used for these schools? Correct. So we are, we are actively trying to get that language to be amended because that's a big problem. Okay, yeah. So we need to keep track of that too. Um, yeah. Yeah, because there are a few issues with these bills and they get complicated. They can also be poisoned and turned into welfare bills by making 
um, income thresholds for who can get it, meaning it's correct distribution of wealth. Yes, I mean that's that's those are controversial issues that have been embroiled in the education freedom accounts. They're not specifically in our lane, so we haven't necessarily spoken to that. But certainly, adding non-discrimination language in there um, makes it be in our lane, and that we have to speak up about that. Yeah, we have to protect our Christian schools. Yeah, and on your website, you also have House Bill 180 here, which I'm not very familiar with, but it's increasing the penalty for, for human trafficking? Yes, and that one's going to be fine. It came out of the committee 24 to 0. I think that was even, that may have even been added to the consent calendar. So um, that's a bipartisan bill. So we haven't made a big deal about it since it came out of the committee that way, knowing that it was going to be added to the consent calendar. So we haven't even really been asking people to call their legislators about it because it should be fine. Well, yeah, thankfully it's not that controversial that human trafficking is a bad thing. Right. Um, but but within that, you know, that's that uh that that agenda or that that issue kind of molds into human trafficking and the push for the legalization of prostitution and so you know we're we've had to really get involved in that because there has been more and more of a push to legalize prostitution which a lot of the survivors that we work with talk about how the legalization of prostitution increases human trafficking so you know we're keeping our eyes closely on that so we do care about those those issues and so there's some elements of it that we can all agree upon but then you got to pay close attention because then there's other elements of it that get very controversial well, that is very complicated and controversial i have a few different stances on it personally I'm, I'm very conservative so i'm not into prostitution politically and legally i don't think anything should be illegal for consenting adults um the problem with with prostitution and human trafficking is it blurs the line and gets extremely complicated with what's consenting adults and what's real human trafficking and imprisonment and what's psychological imprisonment. I've spoken to people who I think spoke at an EMS conference who was a, a survivor of sex trafficking. And she, ex she explained to me, I spoke to her after her lecture because it was really good. And we spoke for a while and she explained that more so than being physically kidnapped and stuck by her pimp, it was the psychological, her, him controlling her and making her, you know, essentially brainwashed to thinking that he was her caretaker and she had nothing, no resources, money, car, phone. And she essentially lived him, loved him, Stockholm syndrome maybe. So yes. it's very complicated. Um, and again, as a voluntarist and a, a you know, consent and property rights absolutist, I don't want to make anything illegal if it's consenting adults, but maybe not all prostitution is consenting adults because it's very complicated with who oh. is being manipulated and controlled either physically or psychologically, which is very complicated, hard to prove. Uh, so it's a very difficult issue. And there is you know, a push for legalizing prostitution from the left, but also full disclosure, libertarians, a lot of my, my friends, are supporting legalizing it. And some would say that much like the war on drugs, legalizing prostitution would make it a little bit more out in the open and safer and better as opposed to the black market, like with drugs. I am totally split on the issue. I'm not an expert. I would have to do research before I had an opinion on it. I'm pretty split, but there are some libertarians who I think may have some validity to their point of making things more legal and less government, um, like with the drugs, would, would decrease the uh, monopoly and cartel and trafficking. But what's so, what's so interesting about human trafficking, and the reason that caught my eye, because I was looking at your website briefly this morning, the, the human trafficking caught my eye because I was thinking about, I saw something on, on social media a few weeks ago about the masks. And if you look at human trafficking with children, I think children are a quarter or a third of human trafficking victims. Um, for them to be found, you have the signs of their face with an amber alert or some kind of sign that a child is lost or kidnapped, trafficked. 
Um, they could be anywhere in the world now if they're trafficked, but if their face is totally covered from here down, and if they have glasses or a hat, they're almost 99% covered, meaning they could be out in public shopping with their, their pimp or kidnapper or uh, owner, and they won't even be recognized. So I, I saw that. Yeah, I saw that on social media a few months ago, and I was thinking, holy crap, that is a really good point. If you know, if dealing with it, like especially in places like Atlanta that are notorious for human trafficking, Orlando, there's just some hot spots in the country that deal with it, you know, more than the average. And I have friends that are trying to be advocates that children should not be wearing masks when they're traveling for that very, very reason. And you know, tangentially, but but related, you know, I was on a conference call back in August of last year, and it was for uh, human trafficking survivors. And, um, and it was, it was right, left. This was not a political, uh, um, meeting. Uh, and they were talking about, you know, what have been some of the challenges that you faced in helping women that have, that are survivors of human trafficking. And they said that the number one issue, and again, I don't even know where this woman is coming from politically, because that's not what the call was about. She was talking that the number saying that the number one issue that the that their survivors are dealing with is the masking because the masks remind them of being raped and abused. And so they're trigger emotional triggers for them. And so it's been really, really difficult. And what's been frustrating for me is that there's so many different advocacy organizations for women that have been abused. But instead of saying, like, give them the grace to not have to wear a mask, they're instead telling them to put like perfumes on it or like lavender to help them to like calm them down to get used to having it on their mouth. And I'm like, would you say like, you know, have your rapist put lavender on their hand to calm them down or whatever? Like none of these organizations are speaking up against the masks. Pardon me? None of these organizations that are pro-women and Wow. No. Now they're saying they're giving them coat. They're giving them ideas for coaching them of how to deal with it, like breathing exercises and, you know, that type of a thing, but they're not going far enough to say, give them the grace that they shouldn't have to wear them. And, you know, I have a dear friend of mine who was raped as a child by her uncle and she really struggles with the idea of wearing a mask and she's not even been able to go to the grocery store or anything. And when she was at Target, there were two women behind her that were mumbling in such a way that they they weren't really mumbling. They wanted her to hear them. And, you know, they were mocking her for not wearing a mask. And she ended up, you know, rushing out of the store and was crying because she was just because she felt like saying like, you, you guys are the ones that are that are driving me to, you know, consider thoughts of suicide and stuff, because she's really been struggling with anxiety for years because of the survivor syndrome. But then add, then, you know, COVID with the masking has just accelerated it by being forced to wear the mask. And so she's like, I just don't even want to go out anymore. And, you know, the burden is on her husband to go out. And when you've got the dynamics with young kids and he's the primary breadwinner, you know, then he's having to go to the store. I mean, my point is, it's just, it's creating all of this division and anxiety and family life that should not be happening. You know, we should be, you know, we shouldn't judge, you know, we always talk about like, don't judge people, don't question until you walk in their shoes, you just don't know. But yet when it comes to masks, there's absolutely no grace for that. There's no understanding and grace that says, you know what, I don't know what she's going through, or I don't know what he's going through, you know, and I, and just, 
give them the space to do what works best for them. You do you and I do me. And even what's crazy is that even if they were found to have antibodies and they got the vaccine and they tested negative an hour ago, these people still would not be able to you know, breathe without masks. It would not be considered acceptable by society at large and by police. That's what's so insane. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, again, I mean, just kind of going back to like, you know, being in our lane is like being an advocate for the survivors. And, you know, I just, I feel like that there's just a level of tone deafness of like understanding their situation and having the grace. And a number of people that I've talked to, like they've said, like, I've never even thought about that. Never even thought about that. Or even the children that are perhaps being abused at home and they're having a pillow put over their mouth or, you know, whatnot. Like you just have no idea what's going on with them. And um, I just feel like society needs to be a lot more sensitive to those individuals. Of course, if I were a crazy conspiracy theorist, I, I would say that maybe the fact that masks have become globally 100% acceptable and it's unacceptable to not wear a mask globally around the entire, almost the entire world now. If I were a crazy conspiracy theorist, I would say that maybe the, the big human traffickers, because it is big business, I think billion dollar or trillion dollar industry worldwide, and a lot of people being trafficked, maybe they are happy about this or contributing to this or benefiting and pushing politicians to keep the mask mandates going. I don't know if I have any direct proof for that, but maybe that's what some crazy conspiracy theorists might say, because that would make sense. Because if I were a human trafficker, the mask mandate would be the best thing ever. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, 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 I hear you. I mean, who's to say, I mean, there's so much evil to go around in all of this. And, you know, like I said, coming from a Christian perspective, the only thing that helps to keep me sane is recognizing that we can't try to reason through evil. And I do believe that there is evil in the world. And, um, and so I'm still going to fight it, but I don't try to reason through it. It's yeah. trying, it's like trying to understand why Hitler did what he did. Like we have, the Rwandan we have, genocide. Like I, I, I cannot begin to understand how people can do that to each other. And the good news is that we have a lot of great people in DC who are looking out for these, you know, human trafficking crimes, amazing people like uh, Comey and Clinton and, and all those awesome, wonderful politicians who I'm sure would love to stop all, you know, human trafficking and just all these benevolent people in law enforcement and government, politicians, uh, Biden and Harris, they, you know, are such pure, amazing angels who are saints. So that's the good news. They're looking out for us. <laughs> oh, I could go on and on. I don't want to get in too much trouble. I just got back on Facebook. I'm going to get thrown off like tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Is there anything else that are legislatively or anything else that we haven't yet discussed? Well, I would just encourage you, you know, like when you were talking about um, the, the issues related to the human trafficking and, and how those connections are with prostitution. I would just encourage you at some point in the future to have our director of public policy and legal counsel, Ian Hewitt, on your show to talk about that as a, he's a libertarian minded fellow. And I think that the two of you could engage in a really interesting debate and exchange about that. Um, and I would also um, encourage folks that might be listening who are in the faith uh, community um, to get to know Neil Hubacher, our director of the Church Ambassador Network, encouraging the faith community to lean into the political sphere and to not be afraid of it, but that it's also our responsibility to engage in the political sphere with our leaders, political leaders and so forth too. So we've got a really great team at Cornerstone and there's any number of avenues that you can take on your show as it relates to yeah, these different folks and you, what we're doing on our team. You and Ian, all the people on your team, I'm a big fan of you guys. So you guys are all welcome on the show anytime. Come on my show, come on 
any other podcast within the Liberty Block Network. We have a podcast actually Wednesday afternoons. We have a podcast at 4 p.m. every Wednesday. So anytime, just come on. You have our numbers and everything. So how can people find more about you and about Cornerstone? Is there a, a website and what are all the social media sites to find and follow what you're doing? Uh, we are, our website is nhcornerstone.org. Um, we are on Facebook um, and you can find us at Cornerstone Action on Facebook. Uh, and then we also have a Twitter um, as well. We're on Twitter and Instagram. And then we also have a Telegram um, channel as well. So you can find us there too. So we're moving into more of the alternative social media outlets, if you will, um, knowing that we might get shut down like you at some point soon enough too. Excellent. Yeah. Diversification is good. I'm glad I'm on with you now. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all your time. I'm a big thank fan you. of what you're doing and come back soon. All right. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Elliot. Have a great afternoon. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. Check out libertyblock.com for more.